Hello, humans. I am your host, Bradley Martin, and this is Clearing the Way, a resource for small business. Uh, I talk with sales and HR experts, other small business owners, and anyone else that can provide you with information to clear your way to success. Um, today is a little different. We're talking nonprofit. Uh, my guest today is Clay Kilgore, Executive Director of the Washington Historical Society and host of Laidback History. Uh, Clay graduated from Penn State with a bachelor's in history. Um, he spent eight years as the historical director at uh, the Bradford House and has experience as a consulting historian for Major Television Network. Uh, he began working with the Washington Historical Society in 2002. Uh, after 10 years there, he became the executive director and has been in that role since 2012, which is kind of crazy. Um <laughs> Clay is a man of many talents, uh, from being a legit blacksmith to video production. Uh, he's involved in what seems to be most events and organizations in Washington um, and is likely a massive reason – well, is definitely a, a big reason that um, this area has been able to kind of lean on its history and, and see the growth and development associated with that. So – Clay, thank you for coming on. Thank you for being a guest on Clearing the Way. I'm happy to be here. That was a wonderful intro. Like, you make me sound a lot better than I am. I don't know, man. It's all true. And also make me feel a lot older than I feel like I am. 20 also year, true. 20 years at the LeMoyne House. That's crazy. That's a long, that's a long time with one place. Yeah. Um, okay. So, before we get there, let's talk about you. Did you grow up locally? I did, yeah. I uh, grew up in West Finley, so out okay. in the middle of nowhere. Uh, okay. I was showing some uh, friends of mine, uh, wasn't that long ago, they were asking about you know where I grew up, and I showed them a drone shot that I took of my house, and like so I'm way up looking down at it, and there's no other houses around, <laughs> and it's just all trees and, and open fields, and they're like, oh my God, you really grew up in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, yeah, I really did. So, What school district is that? It's McGuffey. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. McGuffey, so. Um, okay, so went to McGuffey. I assume. Um, what did any activities that you were involved in? Any sports or anything? Oh yeah, then? I played basketball. I played soccer, but I was a basketball player. That was my my main thing. Yeah. Okay. And what kind of student were you? I assume you were interested uh, in history immediately. I mean, I was so I was I was interested in history, but was I a student? No, I played basketball. <laughs> so okay. I, like I I feel bad saying that now, and it used to irritate my mom. Uh, because she would get so mad at me because I never got good grades. She's like, you're so much smarter than this. And I'm like, I'm playing basketball, Mom. Like That's what well, I'm worried about doing. <laughs> so were you just not interested in in like, in like the the structure of school? Like what was it that – Yeah, that's a good, great question. I love to read, and I always okay. have. I always read things on history. You know, I was, I was always very interested, and in, I was very interested in archaeology – I read all kind everything I could find. You know, I was growing up. Where in, the hell did that come? Like, that's not something that <laughs> that you learn in school. Yeah, I don't right? know. Uh, it's just something. I, you know, I think. Every, I mean, every every kid at some point likes dinosaurs, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just something as you're growing up, you like dinosaurs, and so I remember. I don't. It was in Ohio, I think. When I was younger, we went on a vacation and somewhere we went, you were able to dig fossils up like it was okay. and, and you would just go and it was like this big pit. You could dig through it. And I found these stones that had, you know, fossils in them and, and they were like little shells and mm -hmm. things like that, leaves. And, and I think that's kind of where it started. And so I still have those. I actually still have those. those oh, things. That's I, cool. I have a box of them, you know, from that day that I found them. And I can't remember where we got. How old them. were you? Uh, Roughly. I probably 
no older than 10. Yeah, I was younger. Damn, yeah. okay. That's cool. And so I remember finding those, and that was probably where it started. And so I always loved that, but I just didn't care. I didn't care about math. I was good at math. Like, and if you, if I guess geometry is math, but I <laughs> yeah. ended up with like 108% in the class yeah. because I got a perfect on everything that I did and got the bonus stuff. So I was good at it. Uh-huh. I just didn't want to do it. And, and it, Kind of, kind of translated when I got to college, too. Okay. I, I, I focused so much on the history and the archaeology side of things. I was My grade point average wasn't great and everything else, but in my core stuff, it was yeah. good. So I was always had good grades in history and that kind of thing, but yeah. Where, okay, so the, the like, passion for those things kind of started then. What about so the history side of it, though? Mm-hmm. Where uh, were your parents into that? Like, where did that... How was that introduced to you? Uh, you know what? I don't remember. Uh, you know, I will say it was pre uh, pre internet and uh, and definitely uh, readily available. <laughs> thanks, Brad. <laughs> and readily available cable TV. Like we had one of those gigantic dishes uh-huh. that you know, moved. Uh-huh. Uh, you know. Okay, so so there wasn't there was no History Channel and that kind of thing. So it wasn't like I watched it mm-hmm. there like people do. They see it on there now and they get interested. And I wasn't seeing it online, of course. So I don't know. I honestly can't tell you, but I remember in uh, in elementary school when you would have your library days uh-huh. and you'd go get a book, I would get a lot of things that were history-related or, like, object-related. You huh. know, it was like, like the, I remember there being a Ripley's book, yeah. you know, like yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff. It just always interested me. Huh. Yeah. And nothing, like... Not a like strong influence from your parents at all with that either. Like, my, did they were they interested in those things or? My dad liked history. Yeah, okay. he he still does. Uh, so he he loves history. Um, we did do museums and some okay. things like that. So that's probably you okay. know it's not like they. I won't say they they encouraged it like yeah, oh, but it was just go. part of your yeah. So yeah. you're naturally like that's what you're introduced to. So exactly yeah. Okay, okay. So into history, you're um, not super into the rest of school <laughs> no not at all i i was in high school basically to play basketball okay and when i went to college that was i went to the college with the idea that i wanted to play basketball and so yeah that was that was my main thing okay did you immediately know what your major was going to be or was it just like i guess i like this i'm doing this so i i did immediately go into history because i had to have a major <laughs> yeah um and so i did so i, I picked history as a major um when so I ended up, I ended up getting hurt in, in high school. Uh, I had been recruited to play uh, some D two basketball. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was not not going to D one, but you know, I wasn't that yeah. good. Yeah, I was okay, but I wasn't that good. Uh, and I ended up getting hurt, and so I ended up going to um, Penn State, uh, a Penn State branch campus, figuring I'd rehab and I'd get to where I could, you know, yeah. to get healthy again. Just never really happened. And so after two years of playing. What did you just not heal properly or was it just like the change from high school to college was also a piece of that? No, it was didn't heal properly. I have That's a bummer. I have uh, severe nerve damage in my back. And so okay. it just got to the point where I couldn't play anymore. OK, so there was this period where, you know, I'm, I'm playing basketball and I'm going to rehab and I'm going to go on and play two more years mm-hmm. and then came to the point where I wasn't going to. And the realization set in my third year of college, 
I'm going to have to do something. <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> Hold on. Okay, so okay, so you weren't you knew you weren't good enough to play D1. Yeah. And three years into school, you realize, oh wait, maybe I'm not going pro. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh no, I know I was never going pro. Um, <laughs> so okay, so what was the plan then? Like, finish four years of basketball and then figure it out, right? Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. 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 So, okay. So, <laughs> okay. Um, so I finally, you know, one of the great things about Penn State is uh, they won't give your parents. Uh, your grades like so they okay. my parents can't get you know couldn't get it yeah. so like they could only go off what I was telling them okay <laughs> so okay. Um, oh, mom and dad aren't listening to this um, but uh, I'll make sure I cut this as a clip <laughs> nice so I uh, I um now I got to figure out what I want to do right yeah so I thought archaeology you know maybe I'd, I'd do something in archaeology and uh I had looked at maybe transferring from uh, from you know Penn, well after two years at Penn State branch campus you have to go somewhere yeah. else anyway, so I'm looking at schools to transfer transfer for archaeology, but then there was still this major part of me that wanted to be involved in basketball in some manner. Okay, and so the way to do that would be coaching. Well, you're not going to be able to coach, you know, when you're down in Mexico, you know, digging up you know ancient yeah. civilizations like the Olmec Indians, you know. Mm. So, so here's, so my, this is how my brain, like my, the process went. I love old objects. I want to play with them. I can't, I want to coach too. So I can't be traveling all over the place, you know, digging up objects and still coach. But you know where those objects go are museums. So if I go work in a museum, I can play with those objects. Somebody just, somebody else digs them up though. And that's actually how I got, you know, from, from archaeology to museums. I want to play with objects. That was that was my whole thought process. Huh. <laughs> okay. Well, that seems. I don't know if that seems more fun than going to find the objects, but it. You at least get just all of the pay. You don't have to go through all of the crap to find the objects. So I stay you clean. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You remove all the the dead time of just searching right. for things. I'm not digging. You know, somebody else digs it up, and then I get to go th- go with it. Okay. So <laughs> third year of school. Now you already did have your major though. Yeah, right. I was already okay. majoring in, in history because, you know, I figured yeah. I'm probably going to do something with it. Okay. Yeah. And out of school, did you – it doesn't sound like – like there wasn't much thought immediately of what you were going to do with that. It was just like this is what – I'm here to play yeah. basketball and I like this yeah, thing. Yeah, and I'll so. take history for you know, because I like yeah. the classes. Yep. That okay. was pretty much it. Then third year, it's like, okay, I got to do something. Okay. And I ended up uh, doing internship at Metacroft uh, Museum. Okay. And loved the the living history side of it. You know, they had the collection that I could, you know, help with, but also the living history side of it where uh, you were, I, I don't, I don't want to say it's a performance, but it kind of is. Yeah. You know, you, you take on a role, a, a part, and you play that. And I was, I took on the part of a blacksmith. So I was the, the 1890s blacksmith, and I fell in love with that part of it, too. And so it all kind of morphed into this idea of working in museums, but wanting to do the living history side of it, too. Huh. And so I feel like, you know, as much as I don't like um, large groups and, and, you know, being at like gatherings and things like that, I do pretty well performing in front of people. And so a lot of what my history is, I feel like, is not so much telling history, but almost playing a part, you know, playing the yeah. part of a storyteller huh. in front of people. And I think that's why I do well as a historian, because... I'm not just standing and going, in 1492, yeah. you know, I'm I'm telling a story yeah. and, and trying to make it living and, and active, you know, as people watch. Did you, when you were younger, did you, um, 
did you have any perform? Like, did you were you part of any of the uh, just in no. college? Yeah, that was just part of the job. At yeah, pretty at much. Yeah, Meadowcroft. Yeah, I was not. Uh, <laughs> I took. We had to take a speech class in college, and I remember going in the first time, and you had to do like a, a two minute speech, and I'm like, how the heck am I going to do this? Like, that's two minutes. How are you going to like talk yeah. for two minutes? And now I get in front of people, and they're like, can you? Uh, so the talk, can you do thirty to forty five minutes? And I'm thinking, how am I supposed to get all this in in forty five <laughs> minutes? Are you serious? Did you ever get when you first started there? Was there any like anxiety related to that, or were you just kind of natural like? Yeah. Is it something that comes naturally to you? I guess, yeah, because okay. it never bothered me. Like, I don't okay. mind being in front of people. I can talk to two people or I can talk to a thousand people when it just kind of, okay. I'm just kind of up there being me. Yeah. Like, I'm not even thinking about how many people are there. I'm just telling a story. Yeah. Okay, so you get this first this first intern internship at Meadowcroft. Mm-hmm. Um, was that just a summer or? It, it, it turned into, uh, so it started out as a summer internship, and then they actually hired me on, and I worked there for, seven years uh as okay. a as a blacksmith and in helping with the collections there so okay yeah that's pretty cool that's a yeah. cool spot to i mean i guess you're you're kind of lucky in like the area that we're in like there's a lot of cool things here so much history here there's, it's absolutely amazing yeah there's a lot of cool stuff here okay so um meadowcroft you did you initially want to be there long term or were you like was the plan uh internship graduate and then move off to like what would have been out of school what was your kind of the dream spot to be in so once i once i figured out i wanted to work in museums mm-hmm. um you know i looked at things like uh the heinz history center you know the carnegie museum you know somewhere you know that type of thing yeah. or even bigger than that you know in different towns so I figured the plan was, you know, you normally don't just jump into a spot like that. You've got to get some experience. So Metacroft asked me if I wanted to come back the next year and work during the summer. Yeah, that'd be great. I'll keep doing that. So I kept doing it. And then when I graduated, um, you know, they couldn't take me on full time. And it just so happened when I graduated, the the Washington County Historical Society was looking for a curator. And I thought, well, that's perfect. I can work at Metacroft. I can work at the Historical Society part time. You know, they're both part time. And I'll work five years, and by that point, I'll move on to something bigger and better, yeah. and, and I'll just keep going. And so I started at the Historical Society, and about two years after that, the Bradford House was looking for a director. So I'm still working at Metacroft. I'm the curator, so I'm historian, uh, interpreter at Metacroft, curator at the Lemoyne House. The Bradford House is looking for a director. So um, they end up contacting me and asking if I'd be interested. So I interview with them, and I get the job. So I'm working at three museums, you know, because they're all part time and yeah. I'm just making it work, you know, uh-huh. and, and working at all of them. And I did that for probably two years, two or three <laughs> years. And then Metacroft uh, laid me off because they were doing some renovations and whatever. Mm-hmm. And at that point, things were picking up at the Lemoyne House and the Bradford House. So I never went back to Metacroft and I just kept working between the Bradford House and the Lemoyne House. And I did both of those until 2012, 2011, no, 2012 or 13. When I took over as director of the Historical Society in 2012, I still stayed at the Bradford House for a little while, but it got to be where it was too much. I had to pick yeah. one. Yeah. And I ended up 
going with the historical society. So. Okay, so curator, what is that? What do what do you do there? What is you, that role? You take you play with objects. You know what I wanted to okay. do. You, yeah. you take care of the collections. So you you handle all the collections and and catalog them, store them properly, create exhibits, basically manage the overall museum. Yeah. You know type of uh, experience, uh, and so that's what I did for. I mean, from 2002 into 2011, yeah. 12, uh, you know, when I took over as director. Okay. And while you're at each of those, did the desire to move on to those larger things, like, did that kind of get, did that disappear or was it kind of just like you're in this flow? So it's, it's almost like out of, out of sight, out of mind type of thing. You know, no, it didn't disappear. Um, I interviewed, I interviewed at a, at a museum in, in um, Park City, Utah. I interviewed at a museum up in North Dakota. It was a fort, uh, you know, border fort. Um, so you weren't all, always just looking around here? No, no. I was okay. looking, you know, my thought was to, to move out of the area, you know, to a bigger museum. I had I'd talked about, you know, had, had been... Oh, I, I don't, how do I want to word this? I won't say that I was offered a job at the Heinz History Center, but they they asked me to apply for a yeah. curator's job up there. And, you know, and I I would get through so many interviews and then I'd just kind of be like, you know what, but there's stuff going on here. I'd like to finish this first huh. before I'd go on. And I realized uh, around, took me a while, <laughs> probably around 2014-15, I just realized that I loved where I was. You know, I, I, I love the town of Washington. I, there's so much potential here for it to grow and flourish. And I'm watching it happen and I'm seeing things going on and I'm starting to work with different people around, you know, as the curator, I didn't work too much with other businesses, mm-hmm. you know, other entities. But as the director, I'm creating more partnerships and I'm working with Sarah Collier, who was the director of the, the BDA mm-hmm. uh, at that time. And I'm I'm working, you know, still with the Bradford House. And now, you know, I'm partnering with the Trolley Museum and all these other groups and and other, you know, the library, you know, I'm helping there. And, and, and then I get on the board of the National Road Heritage Corridor. Oh, the National yeah. Road Heritage Corridor. And I see all these things happening and, and I realized it's just where I want to be. Huh. And I want to... I want to make it better, you know, and, and every time I think, I still have this thought every once in a while, like maybe, maybe it's time to move on. Yeah. And then I think, well, no, I want to get the new museum built first. You know, I want to see these things happen and I want to be part of it. And so I feel like, you know, 40 years from now, because my retirement plan is death, you know, it's yeah. a nonprofit, yeah. it's nonprofit work. So yeah. my re- retirement plan is that someday I'll, they'll just find me in the office, you know, and so, um, but I, I can't imagine leaving. I really can't. So I, I feel like as long as the historical society wants to keep me, I'll probably yeah. end up staying. Or as long as you have things that you're working on. As like, long, yes. As long as I feel like there's something happening mm-hmm. and there's interest, you know, like if, if what I'm doing is dead and, and people don't find it exciting, then I'm not the right person for the job. Yeah. You know, as long as things are innovative and we're moving forward and people like it, then I want to keep doing it. Huh. That I mean, that makes sense. It, that's it's cool that you were able to find that. I mean, not by design, mm-hmm. definitely not by design. But it's it's cool that you were able to find that so kind of quickly. Like, okay, you've got your first job, which just comes from an internship. Right. That's dope. Um, and you just 
you're introduced to these new things and then you just find the spot. Like yeah. like five years in, it's like, oh, this is where I'm going to be at forever. Right. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm it's worried about playing cool. basketball and uh, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, well, third year of college, I better do something. And then it just kind of falls into place. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's really, it, it, when I go back and look at it, so there are times I'll think about it. Like, I know the day I hurt my back. Okay. I, I know exactly what I was doing mm-hmm. that day. I remember doing it. And and I'd look back at that and I think, wow, that if I hadn't played pickup basketball that day, huh. I wonder where I'd be right now. Yeah. Like would I have gone on to maybe play division two basketball? There was I, I remember talking to my coach in high school saying, you know, would I be good enough to play in one of the lower professional leagues over in Europe? Mm-hmm. Because there's so many leagues over there and there's yeah. you know, the the lower leagues, like the D leagues. Yeah. He said, yeah, you probably would be able to do it. Would I have gone over there and played for two or three years? And, you know, and where would I be right now? But because I stepped on a guy's foot and mm. jacked up my back, I'm sitting here talking to you right now. Yeah, that's <laughs> sorry. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> what has gone wrong with my life? No. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's cool. Okay, so when you're, okay, so you're at the, let's go back a little bit then. Yeah. Okay, so in those first couple of jobs, mm-hmm. was there the desire to be the one in charge of those organizations? No. Um, so I'm driving to I'm driving to the Heinz History Center one day with Dave Schofield. Dave is the director of Metacroft. Okay. He's been there. Well, he's still there, and he had been there for five or six years before me. Okay, so he's been there for a while. And I'm driving with Dave to the Heinz History Center, and I don't know how we got on the subject. And he said, he gave me some advice. He said, listen, he goes, you want a career in in museums? And he goes, I think that's wonderful. But remember, never become the director. He said, because when you become the director, you stop being a historian and having fun and become an administrator and raising money. And he said, so never become a director. And I tell, I, I just saw, saw Dave yesterday. And there are so many times I'm sitting around worrying about raising the money to build this new building or working on a grant closeout and doing all this administrative stuff. And I think, why the hell did I not listen to Dave? Like, that was the best advice I ever got, and I didn't listen to it. But then there's other times where I can, by being the director, your vision can is what shapes the organization. Yeah. And I like seeing that. Like that that's fun to see. Yeah. Okay, so no thought like <laughs> initially no thought. Okay, so where why did you do that the first time? <laughs> okay. So uh the the director of the Bradford House at the time I took over was more of a it was more of a historian. So okay. you gave tours, you create you did outreach programs, that kind of thing. They had hired an administrator um, okay. uh, who I got to be very good friends with at the time uh, to to kind of take care of that side of it. So I ended up just being – I was the director, but I was more of the historian. Okay. The historical side is when I when, – when my – the predecessor to me, uh, when he retired, 
I was not going to take over as director. And one of the board members, John Stavovi, came to me and he said, listen, Clay, he goes, I know you're a historian. He goes, you're not an administrator. You're not a director, but you can be a good one. And I said, John, <laughs> I said, but I don't want to because I'm thinking of what Dave told me, yeah. right? And I'm like, John, I don't want to. I want to I I I do what I love, and that's be a historian and play with all this stuff, you know, and, and have fun yeah. and go talk to people and tell stories. And he said, but we need you in the historical side. He needs you. And he goes, I will, I'll help you. I'll walk you through it. Like we'll, we'll work together. We'll make you a director. And so now I, I, when I see John, I'm like, why the hell did you do that to me? <laughs> you know? So I got Dave. I didn't listen to his, yeah. to his advice. John, I let him talk me into being director. And there are times where I'm like, why? I'm so stressed out trying to find money, you know, trying to, yeah. to keep things going. I you know, come up with new ideas. And I'm like, why? I just, why can't I just play with the objects again? <laughs> when, when that came up, did you reach out to, did you ask for any advice from Dave? Um, I did. I did. I called Dave and I told him what was going on. And he said, well, you remember the advice I gave you in the car? And I said, yeah. And he goes, it's the same advice now. And I went, <laughs> <laughs> and then Didn't he, change his tune yeah, at all. He said, okay. but, he said, but he goes, it is fulfilling. He said, it's a lot more work and it'll pull you away from what you're maybe you love to do mm -hmm. to some other things you may not like to do. He said, but there's nothing wrong with it. Like he, he was, he was very comforting and he said, you know, there's still a lot of good that comes from it. So I'm like, okay. So I did it. And, and, you know, there are times I still want to, you know, punch John in the face, but you know, yeah. instead, I <laughs> but, mean, but he's, he's your decision. <laughs> he was, listen, he was a great guy. John is, is an amazing person. He's still, he's not on the board anymore, but he's still helping with things. And I still, to this day, there are times I call John and be like, John, what do I do in this situation? Yeah. You know, so he has been a wonderful mentor, you know, with me you know, moving into becoming a director. Yeah. Less of a historian and more of a director. So that, how quickly did you notice the transition from getting to play with things <laughs> to I don't get to play with things anymore? Uh, like, about, how quick did that set in? About a week. <laughs> oh, so, shit. Okay. So yeah. there's like no transition. It's yeah. like, um, it, my playtime's done. The, the good thing is, is that, so I wasn't working in the collection anymore. But the one part that I did keep was the the storytelling side of it. So um, the, the previous director was more worried about the financial side of things. Mm -hmm. And I... I you know, and, and he and I have talked about this, so this isn't an insult to him. He let the the re, the community relationship side of things kind of fade a little bit because he was so worried about making sure the historical side he had enough money to operate. Gotcha. Because there were there were some very lean years. I mean, there were some extremely lean years, and and I could talk about that in a minute. But when I took over, I saw that one of the things I said is that if we we're going to fix things financially. We have to get back out in the community and let them know who we are. Yeah. So I was able to maintain the storytelling side of it because I was going out to every organization that would invite me and I would go talk. I would tell – like I had 12 programs I put together and I would go do historic programs. And if I could go talk to them, then I could sell the historical side to them. Yeah. And so I did um, – I was doing 80 programs a year. Uh, you know, so I was doing multiple programs a week, you know, huh. at different organizations okay. all over southwestern Pennsylvania. Um, now I'm down. Well, since COVID, they're way down. But yeah. uh, prior to COVID in 2019, I was down to only like 40 programs, you know, so I was limiting some of it, but it's still yeah. a lot. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to get out in the community, let them know who I was. So I still got that side of it. I still got to be the fun storyteller. Yeah. 
uh, in the evenings uh, during the day, I was the, you know, the yeah. new fundraiser. <laughs> so. Yeah. Okay. So that, that makes it a little bit better. How quickly did you start doing that? The, I mean, it was an immediate the, thing. Um, we, well, like, did you know that, that you were going to do those programs? Like when you took over, mm-hmm. was it a, I see this as a problem. I already have the solution made for it. Like I'm going to, now I can just do this. Yeah. Not have a worry. Yeah. It was one of those things where I knew right away we had to get back out in the community because we were, I mean, we were running, I mean, we're a nonprofit and everybody thinks, oh, you, you run into the deficit every year. Well, you try not to, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, you do your best not to, uh, you know, cause that's, we can get into the whole nonprofit thing yeah. in a minute, but uh, I saw an issue. And so I started to fix it right away. Like that's one of the things I went to. I, I said, we need money. But I can't go ask people for money right now because they don't know who we are. Yeah. So I need to tell them who we are, and then they want to start supporting us. Yeah. And so I was able to do that pretty much right away. Okay. And did you struggle taking over the rest of it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Still to this day, um, I have a wonderful person that works with me uh, that uh, covers my butt a lot of times. Uh, Kathy, she's our uh, office manager, administrative assistant. And she makes like, I can organize a collection of 10,000 objects. Mm-hmm. I can't organize a filing cabinet. <laughs> like, but, like if you saw my desk, you'd think this is the worst curator ever, right? Cause it's just a mess, mm-hmm. but the collection, I know where everything is. So Kathy is the one that kind of makes sure that, and, and then another uh, employee, Tom Milholland, who is our operations uh, person and development person. They're the ones that make sure that like the, the organizational things yeah. are done properly and, and they're in line. So they keep me in track. And did you have those immediate, like were those available for you immediately? No. So um, the first, when I was, when I took over the, our, uh, uh, the person that took care of the finances, uh, Charlotte, she stayed on for about a year and a half. Because okay. so our PR, we had a PR person and we had a director and then we had me as a curator and then we had the, the finance person. So Jim retires immediately after he retires, our PR person retires. <laughs> and so it's, oh, it's okay. me and Charlotte. We're the only ones there. And then we had our, our research librarian. And so Charlotte didn't want to leave. She was going to retire too, but she didn't want to leave me just hanging yeah. with nobody there. So yeah, she stayed yeah. for about a year and a half. I brought on a firm, former intern of mine, Katie, to be a curator and also help with events. And Katie was really great at organization too. Okay. So she's the one that first started. And then we hired Kathy after Charlotte retired. And Kathy was like, Kathy's the type of person that if she's going through a reconciliation for finances and it's off a penny, she finds that penny. Like she wants everything in exact order. And I needed that. Yeah. Because to me, that penny is like, well, who cares? It's a penny, uh-huh. right? Well, the auditors don't feel that way. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So Kathy was wonderful. So I had a great support structure when it came to that type of thing. Okay. That's definitely helpful. <laughs> yeah. Especially if that's not your thing and you're still in this like, but I want to. I still want to play. Oh, like, I'm still like I that right wanna, now. Yeah. <laughs> so. um, okay. Okay. So you take over. Um, you take over. We'll. Yeah. Not. I mean. I. I guess. Were you excited about it, or was it kind of like I feel like I kind of like need to do this? I felt so. I love the organization, mm-hmm. and I love the museum, and I thought if and, and if I don't do it. Who's going to? And also, this was not an arrogance thing. 
um, at all, but I knew nobody loved that place like I did. Hmm. So whoever did come in, weren't they weren't going to have the passion. They might be doing what I was doing initially yeah. five years and then move on to something else yeah. where I just loved the organization and wanted – I knew that that passion would help. Yeah. You know? Okay, so when did that – when did you notice that you had that pa- the passion for that organization? <laughs> I don't know. Somehow the place just draws you in, Brad. There's something about it. Like everybody that ends up working there kind of falls in love with it. And I, I mean, probably within four or five years, like, okay. I, which would be the, like, I started realizing when I would like apply for these other jobs and then not take them uh-huh. or, or decline an interview, I started realizing, oh, there's probably a reason you're doing that, yeah. you know? And, and it was because I just loved the history. I, I love Southwestern Pennsylvania history. It, like you said earlier, there's so much here. I mean, we've got the underground railroad, the whiskey rebellion, you've got glass factories and you've got the steel mills, you've got the national road. I mean, all this stuff in a strong tie to the civil war, you have all these things that happen here. And I don't, I just couldn't imagine going somewhere else and not having that. Yeah. Well, okay. So all of those things was, was there a particular, um, time period that interested you before you took this, like any of the jobs locally, like in school, was there anything that you were particularly drawn to or, Colonial and revolutionary period. Okay. Um, and so when I took over at the Bradford House, uh, there was a, a wonderful, um, two wonderful people, uh, Tom and Myrna Hart. Uh, they, they're, they are amazing. Myrna was the director of the museum before me. And Tom was actually on the board of directors. And Tom got very interested in the Whiskey Rebellion history and did so much research. Huh. And so I got hired and... Um, they kind of adopted me as another son, uh, you know, and and I got to spend so much amazing time with them. And I remember the one day Tom, like, invited me into his home to see all his research and shared it all with me. And at that point, I'm like, oh, I'm in. Like, you know, this is this is that's I, cool. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I've earned his trust. And he turned over a lot of that research to me, you know, as he had some failing, some health issues. And as his health started to fail, he turned over a lot of that to me and said, you know, keep going. And so that's, that's where a lot of my that's passion. Cool. Well, and that's where my passion for the Whiskey Rebellion came, um, you know, by working with him. And I realized this is an amazing time period that nobody knows anything about. Uh-huh. And very few people are studying it. And so it, when he kind of, Pass that on to me. I'm like, well, I got to keep going, and that's that's what I've done. So that's why I focus so much on the whiskey rebellion in my in my history. Huh. Okay, okay. So that's kind of you. Kind of got okay. So you've always been interested in the, that time period. Yes. Um. Okay. So, yeah, I guess you you're in a good spot for that. Oh yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> I mean, the natural. I mean, and everything ties together. That's what's so amazing about it is you know the so started. We'll just say starting with the whiskey rebellion. Um. The National Road ties to that because one of the reasons the National Road was built was because of the Whiskey Rebellion and the need to get troops out here in case there was another uprising. So the National Road fits into it. And then the Underground Railroad, they use the National Road a lot. And so all the history we have just kind of stacks on itself. 
And you look at, okay, the Underground Railroad and, and then leading to the Civil War, and you got to trace all that back, and you can go all the way back to the Whiskey Rebellion and even before that. And so it all just builds on itself, and that's why, I mean, it's a it's just this perfect epicenter of history, I think. Yeah, well, and okay, so at what point did you... At what point did you stop looking elsewhere? Because of the places that you mentioned that you were looking at, they're like not that at all. <laughs> yeah, no, they're they're yeah. Park City is really nice. Um, yeah, like yeah. Um, no, there's some wonderful places that I looked at. Uh, really, as pretty much as soon as I took over as director, uh, I kind of stopped looking. There's been a few jobs that have piqued my interest in, in you know different times. Yeah. One was down in Wheeling. One was up in Erie. You know, in the but, but relatively low, like yeah. yeah. But pretty much as soon as I took over as director, and I started working more with the community, and I I, I met more people and got to know more people and realized what was here, and, and I just kept looking at it. And like you have these beautiful historic buildings along Main Street, Washington, and you have, you know this such potential here. And then you look at elsewhere down in Monongahela and Charleroi, and there's just these people that are doing incredible work um, trying to, to promote history and save history, but also using that to build the community. And I thought, well, I want to do that. I want to be part of that. Yeah. And so it became not only let's save history, but let's use that history to help build a better future, you know, and, and, and give a, a, make a better community for the people that are here. The saving history, that is such a crazy thing. Like that's a wild statement, like that I have not thought like, okay, so you've got all these things that if you guys aren't uncovering them, they are just gone. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. That is a cool, I, I, okay. That all like, clicks now well there's stuff up at the historical society i'll go through and i did an episode of laid back history once and it was it was <laughs> in the middle of all this construction that we're doing uh-huh. a lot of stuff has been just kind of stacked at the lemoyne house because we had to tear down our storage facility to make room for the new building that'll be our new storage facility and things are just stacked well there's so much at the historical society not all of it has been cataloged so I did an episode of Laidback History. I said, and I think the title of it was What's in the Box? You know, and it was, I, I just sat in the middle of the floor and started opening up boxes and, and looking to see what was in there. And I pull out this document and I had no idea what it was. And I pull it out and I start to realize that this is a muster list for the militia for the Whiskey Rebellion, because it was state militias that were called up to put down the, the rebels out here in Western Pennsylvania. And I find this muster list for uh, down in Virginia um, for a militia in Western Virginia that they were called in the service and this was them mustering out and it had all their names on it and it listed where they had marched to. Like they were mustered out in Western Pennsylvania, had to go all the way to Cumberland and then march back out here. And it was a piece of history that we did not know, you know, and, and if that box was not opened or if somebody like me that didn't know exactly what it was, mm-hmm. somebody could have just inventoried it as muster list. But I looked at it and saw the dates and saw where they were from. And I'm like, oh, I know what this is. And so it was a piece of history that might have been lost forever that we would never be able to tell that. But now it's something that I talk about when I talk about the Whiskey Rebellion. It has now become part of our program. That is cool. So, yeah. Okay. 
So you like just happened to s- stumble upon that kind uh-huh. of. How frequently do you think we're in, like okay? So you've got all these things mm-hmm. that are you know in your possession, like in the organization's possession. How often do you think that can happen? Well, like where it, you just have all these things and it's like nobody actually knows what these are because the right people haven't looked at them. Yeah, I think that happens a lot. I, I really do. Uh, you know, when I started at the Historical Society, I went up to the third floor and there were just boxes of things that that some of it had been boxed. So when the Historical Society was first officially incorporated in, in 1900, we were in the third floor of the courthouse. They built a new courthouse and the third floor was set aside for the Historical Society. 1943, um, they have to move because they need more court space. So they basically said... You know, yeah, you got to get out. We're not, we're not telling you have to leave, but you need to leave. Yeah, and so the historical society they pack things up and they take it to the Lemoyne House because Madeline Lemoyne had passed away and she donated the house to the historical society. There were things that were in boxes from when they moved in 1943 and 44 that had just never been opened back up. So if that happened here. It happened uh, other, I mean, it's mm-hmm. happened at every museum. I guarantee it where there are things that you, there's just so many things that were collected early on and were cataloged properly. Like I have a book from 1918 uh, that is our accession list, but it'll say, you know, 4th of July, you know, 1918 chair donated by John Smith. But it doesn't say what the chair is, you know. So, so there's a chair somewhere donated by John Smith, but I don't know what it is. Or it'll just say a box of documents. Uh-huh. Well, and and if nobody ever went through them, then you don't know what's in there. And so every time we go through a box like that, uh, you know, I I don't put it lightly that we are we are we are discovering new history and then saving it at the same time because there. That document that I found, if I don't find it, we may never know that history. Well, and if – man, that's so – that's weird. Okay, so all of those things too, like they might not make sense now mm-hmm. until you do that same thing in this box over here that opens this new thing. And it's like, oh, these are those same dates from over here. Mm-hmm. That is crazy. They're, yeah. Okay. And, and here's the weird thing. So – and I'm sure other historians have it. I, I'm not unique in any way, but I can't remember like uh, to to come here and day today and do do this. I had to put it in my calendar. Mm-hmm. I had to set a reminder. I had to do like two other things so I'd remember to do it. Yeah. But I will look at a document over here, and four years later, see something else, and and I'll go. Wait, I that's tied to something. I've seen that before. And I'll be able to go find it. Like I'll I'll look and say, okay, I remember it was a green box or whatever it was, mm-hmm. or you know, and I'll go find it again. And so it just a weird way my brain works and it's able to do that. And I think you have people like that at I think that's the type of person that works at a museum. Yeah. Um and, and so when they are able to pull those things together, it it re- it retells history, yeah. you know, so we only can go by what we know, okay? 
and we can only go by what people tell us. You know, oral histories are great, but oral histories change all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that game you used to play in, like, elementary? Telephone. Telephone, yeah. You know, oral histories are the same as telephone. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I tell you something and you whisper it to the next person, next person, it's always different, right, yeah. at the end. Oral histories are the same way. But there's this little nugget of truth in them somewhere. And what the museum collections do, they let us take those little nuggets in the oral history and then we can tie them to documents or objects and we can then start putting it all together and rebuild that history. Okay. That's cool. <laughs> That's I have not I like have not intre- or history is like it's interesting to me but mm-hmm. it's not something I've ever spent a ton of time thinking about like I like listening to people talk about it but it's one of those things I've never focused on it. So like the idea that there are just these boxes of things that even if you were to look at some of them now, it's like, this means this might mean nothing to me. But in six years, I find this other box or somebody brings me a box and it's like, oh, shit, this is what they were talking about. <laughs> yeah, it all ties oh, together. Oh, crap. Now I know exactly what happened in this week span or like this thing that none of us knew about. Right. That's that's cool. Can I just say I've been so careful not to swear trying to be nice and you just now I'm just like well I could have been swearing this whole time say whatever you want (laughs) (laughs) I don't care if you're good with saying it I I don't care (laughs) Um, you know you make a comment and you said you you like history but you've never really been into it Mm -hmm. and I think there's so many people like that because the way you learn history in, in high schools and, in, and even in some ways in colleges, because you have you have a curriculum you have to follow. Mm-hmm. And so teachers need to hit certain points and they can't go into the the little things that yeah. are kind of interesting or the storytelling part of it. Because they have to they, you've got these standardized tests. You have to make sure you get this date, this date, this date. And it hamstrings, I think, a lot of the teachers because yeah. they can't teach it how they would like to. Yeah. Where I don't have that restriction. And museums don't have that restriction a lot of times. We can tell the fun little stories uh-huh. and we can we can tell we can be storytellers and not giving a history lesson, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well that's the the thing that like kind of opened my mind to that side like to even tell me that I was a little bit interested mm-hmm. is the um, Dan Carlin's hardcore history series. Yes. Like all of the I mean, they're so hard to consume because they're so damn mm-hmm. long. But there were a couple of them that I would listen to that was like, oh, wait a sec. Like, yeah. because when you hear about the historical events, you think of them, like, it removes the the people from mm-hmm. it. Like, it's not, it's just this thing. It's like, it's like a number. Right. It's, it's this date where people died, where it's right. like, oh, if you hear about a story of one of the people that died, it's like, oh, that was a real person. Yeah. Those thousand people, those whatever, this was a real thing that happened, mm-hmm. not just uh, an old, like, uh, a sentence. Well, and I think that's where podcasts and YouTube and those types of things have helped. Mm-hmm. Like, there's several that I watch on, there's one called It's History mm-hmm. uh, that's on YouTube, and it's awesome. And there's some, like, stories that you may never hear before, and the, the way they do it is like a story. It's not like just telling dates. Uh, and then there's another uh, another one on YouTube, and I can never remember what what. He has like four different pages, but the guy's name is Simon. He's a bald English guy. Um, and he, he to me, when I started my laid back history, was a lot what I wanted to be because okay. he's a storyteller and he makes it fun. Um, and that's, I think that's where 
uh, you can benefit where a lot of benefit has come to history yeah. through these through new mediums because it's not just a history book that you're reading in school or a, a teacher that has to teach a certain curriculum. Yeah, you can just go do it, and I think that's why people have liked laid back history because it's exactly what it is. It's laid back history. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not like stringent, like, okay, we have this date and this date and this date. I'm like, hey, let me tell you about this, mm-hmm. you know, and, and try to just tell a story. And, and I think those mediums have brought more people into history and, and let them see the benefit of it yeah. and how fun it can be. Yeah, it just makes it so much more approachable. Yeah, that's a perfect um, way of putting it. It's approachable. Yeah. Um, okay. This episode is brought to you by the City of Washington Citywide Development Corporation. Uh, If you're a small business in Washington and you need another set of eyes on your situation or uh, you need help growing, you're not sure what's going on with the business, you can't figure out how to get out of the the current struggles you're going through, um, you're just looking for ways to become a little bit more efficient, um, anything else like that, um, or if you don't know where to go next, you don't know who to find to fix whatever the problem is reach out. Um, the, uh, WCDC is a free resource. Uh, we're here to help. The links are down below. Um, reach out. Like I said, it's a free resource. Now back to the episode. Okay. So you take over and let's get back to that. Okay. So you're, you're at the, uh, historical society Mm -hmm. learning how to be an executive director. (laughs) Yeah. Um, how long do you think until you, I mean, you already said it, like there's a ton of things that are still like, how the hell do you do this? But when did you finally feel somewhat comfortable in the position or have you, <laughs> I guess maybe let's start there. Have you? And when? I feel comfortable sometimes and other times I don't. Um, I, you know, I'll, I, I made a mistake uh, two months ago. Made, made a mistake and and was at risk of losing a $20,000 grant because of a mistake on my end. And I was, I remember calling my treasurer going, I, I need to, I need to resign. Like uh-huh. you got, like, I'm a, I, 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 yeah. how can I do this? I can't, I, I'm going to lose you $20,000. You can't have somebody like in charge like this. And he's like, just calm down. You know, it's okay. Um, and he talked me through it. And, you know, uh, Jason is, you know, he has, he's a, has started and sold multiple businesses. I mean, he's an incredible person. He's like, listen, you're going to have problems. It doesn't make you a bad director. You just learn from it. And you yeah. move on. So there are still times right now where I'm like, I'm, I, I can't do this job. Yeah. I'm not good enough. Like yeah. you need somebody better. And then there'll be weird times where I'll be sitting around going, yeah, I'm doing okay. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, yeah. Can, I can do this. Right. So it goes back and forth all the time. And I feel like, I feel like that's most people in their job. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so when you're um, entering, I guess you're the plan the whole time was you were going to be in nonprofits. Like that was kind of the path. Well, it was basketball then nonprofits. Well, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Once basketball was gone, it was you're probably going to be associated with nonprofits forever. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So as um, so, then let's let's start kind of talking through some of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. As an employee, let's say you've got new people entering the space of nonprofits. Uh-huh. Um, as a not a director, mm-hmm. we're we're just here to work. Um, 
what are some of those immediate things that are like, you need to be aware of this? Because this is going to be different than a, a job, like a, um, well, a for-profit place. Mm-hmm. Like, what are, are there any, is there anything that comes to mind immediately of, like, you need to be aware of this? Oh, yeah. Uh, first thing I tell people is run. <laughs> Go away. Okay. Um, no. I, so nonprofit work, um, I, I think the, the main difference is... And, and you know, and this is coming from somebody that's that's not worked in the for profit mm-hmm. area. I mean, I've always worked in nonprofits, um, but what I see and when I talk to people, so many people they go to work at eight o'clock and then at four o'clock they're done. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's kind of like okay, they did their job for those eight hours and then they're done. Now they go home and they have their regular life. I think in most nonprofit work, that's not the case. Uh, nonprofit work becomes your life like it you 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 incorporate it into everything uh you know it's 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 a different way of thinking it's Mm -hmm. a different way of life where you're not doing nonprofit work for money i mean for the most part i mean yes there are high paid directors at bigger museums and and that kind of thing there are no doubt but i think for the most part you know you're looking at smaller nonprofits you're doing it because it's a passion of yours and so you need to realize when you get into this, you're not going to get rich. You know, there's a very little chance you're going to get rich. So if you're doing this, do it for the right reasons. Do it because it's something you feel so strongly about that you want to be part of it. And just be prepared for the fact that as as four o'clock rolls around, it's probably going to be pushed to five Mm -hmm. or six. And, you know, and if there's an event, um, because nonprofits are full of events, Mm -hmm. right? Um, you're going to be working uh, extra time. Your weekends aren't going to be your weekends a lot of times. Uh, so it takes up, I think it becomes more of your life. Like where, where if you're a, a lawyer, that is your life. Don't get me wrong. That's yeah. your career and everything. But I think there's a lot of times where in a, in a regular for-profit job, once quitting time comes, then you break off and you go do the things you like to do then, mm-hmm. right? Now you go do your passions where, my passions and those people that work in nonprofits, you're there because that is your passion. So yeah. what do you do on your time off? More of that. More of that. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's more incorporated into your life, I feel. Did you did you feel the same way even before you were a director? Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, yeah. It, yes. Yeah. Um, I think you realize it. Not too long after you get involved uh, in, in in the nonprofit field, I think that if you work at like let's say I had taken the job at the historical society and my plan was still to move on in five years and I hadn't fallen in love with it, mm-hmm. it may have just been a job then. But I think once you hit a position to where you really are in that position because it's where you want to be, you feel very strongly about it. You know, um, you know. Uh, our friend Brandy, who's at the Literacy Council, you know, she's very much into that, you know, and so she's she's has moved to a different few different places, but I, she's found the place where she wants to be. And so, you know, when you talk to her, that's a lot of what she talks about. Mm-hmm. You know, what I talk about is history because I'm in the position where I want to be. It becomes a huge part of who you are. I wonder if. Huh. So maybe it's it's actually just easier to find the, that in nonprofit because I like I know people. Okay, so people that own a business, mm-hmm. it's kind of it can be similar where it's like it becomes their whole life because that's what they love doing. Right. So when they're not, so maybe that's a um, 
you're more likely to find that in nonprofit because people are not as likely to get paid as much. Right. So they're they're the likelihood of it being some a true passion of theirs is just greater. Yeah, I so, think so. So the numbers are just like, oh, you're more likely to just get sucked into this thing because mm-hmm. you're doing it because you like it. Well, and, and the thing is, is I say that sometimes and I feel like it's insulting people that don't work in nonprofits. And it's not. If you go to a job to make money so you can do the things you yeah. love, that's fine. I, I that's To me, that's just as admirable. Yeah. Me, I just happen to what I like to do is the nonprofit work. Yeah. So it, it, it just becomes part of that. I don't need to make money to do what I love because I'm just doing it yeah. for very little money. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's the thing you kind of realize in nonprofit work is that you're, you know, like, I don't have benefits. I don't have retirement. That's why I joke that you know, my retirement plan is somebody to find me in my desk. That's pretty much where I'm, you know, shaping up to be. So because that's the case in a lot of nonprofits, it's not, it's not everywhere. Yeah. There's bigger nonprofits that have that yeah. kind of thing. But I think that's the case in so many nonprofits that you just naturally find the person that's there is because they love to do it. I did a, um, I did a video um, for, um, for CASA, uh, you know, uh, and I interviewed a lot of the people that work there. And the original idea of the video was going to be a history of CASA. I started interviewing them. And what that video ended up being was a passion project for them. Like the emotion, the passion that they have for what they're doing at CASA was overwhelming. Like it moved me. Uh-huh. And and because that's what they love and what they care about. And it, it's a huge part of what they do. Um, and I think that happens like me. If you would interview me about the historical society, I get emotional about it because it's something I care about so much. And I love so much. and I feel so important. And I think you find that, you know, around at nonprofits because of that. Do you think it would be okay? So, a couple, uh, just a couple thoughts here. One, do you think the fact that people generally aren't making as much if they were to do the same thing for a for-profit thing, mm-hmm. do you think that is a like kind of necessary to the success of a lot of nonprofits because you like because you're more likely to be doing it for passion? No, because there are, I mean, you see different nonprofits and different organizations that have a great amount of income and they have good salaries and people are just as passionate about it. I don't think it's the lack of money. I I just think that... um, That might be a deterrent. I mean, it's certainly a deterrent for a a lot of... It's definitely a deterrent sometimes. Like when I have interns come in, I tell them like, you sure you want to be a historian? (laughs) Like, are you positive? Because... Um, but there are ways. I mean, there are bigger museums and organizations. I think if you look at the smaller ones, like the Washington County Historical Society is not a small organization. Mm-hmm. But in the scheme of things, it's not the Heinz History Center. It's not the Carnegie Museum. It's not the Met, you know, up in New York. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it is, you know, by scale, a smaller nonprofit. And so you're going to find people that are more passionate about it. Like, would anybody just come in for my salary and do all that I do? No. You'd have, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that would do that, not because they're bad people or because I'm better, but I'm from the region. Mm-hmm. I love the history. I care a lot about it. And so I'll put more into it because of that. Yeah. Is that, is that kind of answer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so 
Is there, I'm sure you've thought through this, but now I'm like kind of just thinking about this out loud now on a mic, which is always good. <laughs> um, okay, so do you, like, is there a way, okay, so let's, we'll get to this, I guess, the funding side of it, because mm-hmm. that's come up. Okay, so there are ways that you get funding for things. Mm-hmm. We can cover those and the difficulties of that. But is there a way to increase and treat it more like a for-profit to increase salaries to get more of the candidates that are out there yes. that might be interested? Like, Yeah, I think, I think when you look at a nonprofit, you almost have to look at it as a business. Mm-hmm. You can't just look at it like, oh, I'm going to lose money. That's not the way things work. Um, you know, nonprofit is kind of a, uh, a, a misnomer. I think a lot mm-hmm. of times people say, oh, a nonprofit, you can't make a profit. Well, no. I mean, we've turned a profit the last several years at the historical society. Not a huge one, but, you know, we're, yeah. we're, we've turned a profit. Um, the difference is, is that we aren't – so let's say we make a $30,000 profit. That money doesn't get distributed back into the board of directors mm-hmm. or, you know, an individual, something like that. Now, if we make a $30,000 profit, you could increase my salary, you know, and and so it can go back into the organization. But by going back to somebody like me, you're investing back into the organization. So the idea of a nonprofit is that if there is profit made or you're benefiting a a group, uh, you know, uh, uh, an organization, a region, a community – and so the money goes back, you invest it back into that. Yeah. And that's the, the idea of it. So thinking of a nonprofit as you don't make money is wrong. Yeah. If you think of it that way, you're not going to make money. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we look at it as a business. Like I try to cut overhead. You know, I, I look at it the same way that a big, that a, that a large corporation would. Mm-hmm. Our funding sources are just a little bit different. Like, so we're not making a product to sell. Um that's actually that's not true. We do have a product we're selling. We're selling history, but we're not making you know like a bottle of water, and yeah. that we're selling that bottle of water, and we need to sell so many units to make to break even. So since we don't have that product like that, that individual thing we're selling, um, we take our our product becomes our our entity, the organization, and I have to go sell it to people. So I have to go convince people that we are important, and that what we give to the community is important, and then they donate to us yeah. or, you know, we get corporate sponsorships because they think that, you know, we're, we're the organization. And so they want their name tied to us. Uh, that's the big thing. We're selling ourselves. We're selling what we are and, and trying to get funding by people that see the benefit of it. Was that difficult for you at the beginning? Yeah. Uh, asking for money is a hard thing. Um, when I am, if I have some, you know, random, you know, on a random side of things, I'm a blacksmith. So you, you mentioned that. So I have a business on the side, Old Plank Forge. When I make a knife, I put a value on it and I sell it for that. Yeah. I'm not asking you for money. You're looking at that and going, oh, I want to give you $30 for that knife yeah. or whatever it may be. Well, when you're selling a nonprofit, you're going to an organization, you're going to a business and saying, asking them for money. And so it's a lot different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard sometimes. And a lot of people can't do it. And I had, I struggled with it at first. Like, um, I remember asking, I remember making a request once and I like him hauled around it. And I made a request and I, I will say it was for $5,000. And the person went, oh, cause I was thinking more like 10. And I went, 
I mean, well, if you want to, that's great. And they did. But the, uh, and I had another person say, I've been waiting for you to ask me, like, uh, they have been part of the organization for a while. And they've been, they were waiting for me to finally come to them and uh-huh. ask. Um, and so you have to get in that mindset that you have an important product and it's okay to ask for people to, to fund it. And so when you go to them, you, you're selling yourself, but you're selling the organization. You're selling what we can do for the community. And a lot of times you're selling the community and what it can become. You know, you're kind of selling yeah. a future to them and then they want to be part of it. You know, that's like when you see a, uh, like our, our, um, all-purpose room uh, at the historical or at the new building is going to have a name on it, and I, I know who it is, but I'm not going to say yet. Yeah. Um, you know, so their name's on it. Their name is on it because they want to be part of what's going to happen in there when we have an event and we have we we tell stories. They mm-hmm. want to be part of that, and that's the big thing that you get with a nonprofit. The people want to be part of it. They're not buying a product. They want to partner. They're, they're giving you money so they can partner with you and be part of what you're doing. Was whenever you got more comfortable, was it just that like, well, what led to you becoming more comfortable asking for it? Was doing it just repetition? Okay. Real, doing it enough time and realizing that the worst thing that can happen is that they say no. Well, and you know what happens if they say no? You go, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. Love to still have you involved in some way. And, you know, if you need anything, you let me know. You walk out. And the day's the exact same. You know, yeah. now, don't get me wrong. If they give me $100,000 when I walk out, I'm, dance, I'm dancing. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I'm not dancing out the door. But, you know, it, my day, you know, it's the same thing. You know, and so I got to the point where I realized it's not a catastrophe because more people are going to say no than are going to say yes. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. And that was, that was the big thing to get comfortable with. When did you have any, I assume you like tapped in, well, actually, okay. So before you take over as the director, Mm -hmm. were you involved in any of that, that side before? At the Bradford House, yes, okay. uh, I was. Uh, at the Historical Society, not so much. No, I was basic. Well, I helped set up for events, but I wasn't part of like promoting the event, yeah. selling the event, going and asking for money, That fi- the fundraising side of it. No. Okay. So really my first was at the Bradford House when we started some things there. But really the first time I led anything was when I took over at the Lemoyne House. And is there a... Um, there are ways to do, like, what are some of the avenues for doing that? Like there, I assume there's the, like, just talking to certain people and asking Mm -hmm. what are, um, and you've mentioned events several times, but how are you thinking through that kind of, um, well, okay. So one is what are those options? Like Mm -hmm. how are some of the ways that you guys can raise money as a nonprofit and Mm -hmm. how, let's just start there and we'll see where we go. So there are, um, you can you can do events. Uh, you can you can raise money through events. I don't think it's a good avenue to do it. Uh, like okay. I think it's hard to sustain an organization by planning events because there's a lot of money that goes into an event. You know, and, and what we what we have to do is not only look at okay, it cost us. We had to pay for the room. We had to pay for the food. We had to pay for this. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And you know, and then the ticket you know, the people paid, paid for that. And then we made something off of it. But what if it took 40 hours of my time or it took this other person's, you know, 80 hours of their time and we have to incorporate that into it. And so it's hard to run an organization on events. Okay. What the events do though, um, 
is if you make a little bit of money off of them, awesome. You make a lot of money off them, great. But what they do though is they create relationships and they they get somebody in the door. So somebody comes to our Spirits in the Garden event and they see we're doing incredible things and now they want to come back and they want to join the organization and they want to be more part of it. So really, to me, the events build friends. Mm -hmm. Now you build that friend list and that friend list is then who you go to and you go to them and you build up relationships with them. Like I, the thing that I, I hope that people that are donors to the historical society, and I've, I've said this to many of them, I hope they realize that I'm still going to be their friend and I'm going to want that relationship, whether they give me money or not. I get to the point where I really like these people and I become close to them. Um, and so it's just a bonus when they give something. But it's a bonus that you need. Yeah. Like they know that I need that I need that funding and that yeah. support. So that's the tricky part for me is making sure they realize I'm not just there because I want their money. Now there are people I've gone to and and built a friendship with, but the initial thing was going to talk to them and to try yeah. to get their support. So there's individual donors like that that you go after, and they're a major part of it. Your membership is a big part of it. We don't make money off of our members per se for their for what they pay for their membership, mm -hmm. but they're members because they like the organization. They want to know what's going on. And so now they know there's a fundraising mm -hmm. event coming up. They know that the annual appeal is coming out, and we mail to them, and they'll donate additional on top of what they pay to be members. So you have the individual donors like that. But then you have um, other sources you can go to, like corporate sponsors. Now, corporate sponsors, you know, you go to them, and you may have a friendship with them, but they're getting something out of it. Yeah, they want their name tied to it. Um, you could go to certain businesses in the region that, you know, have maybe don't have a great name or they want to build, you know, relationships in the community. And so they'll become a corporate sponsor because now they know I have a good name. The Historical Society has a good name and now they're tied to it and they can say, oh, see, we're helping the Historical Society. And so what they're getting out of it is public relations. Yeah. And so you have that type of, of group too, but then you have foundations. Um, so there's another source you can go to. You can go to foundations. Um, and those are those foundations have been formed solely to help support nonprofits. And a lot of the foundations have certain things that they'll they'll uh, support. Some people want history, some want literacy, some want education. Mm -hmm. And you can go after the ones that you know like history or education because that's what we do, um, or African American studies because you know we're an underground railroad site. So there's there's things like that that you know, we can go after, and they want to. Their mission is the support groups like us. And so we can apply for funding from foundations. And then there's grants, you know, that there's all kind of different organizations yeah. for grants that you can go after. So there's a lot of funding sources out there. And so when you look at it, and I say that, oh, we have individuals, we have mm -hmm. corporate, we have, you know, um, foundations, we have grants, and you look at that and go, oh, that's a lot of money. And it is, but there's also a lot of lot of nonprofits, and you've got mm -hmm. to meet the right criteria to fit into this foundation or that grant. And there's a lot of competition because there are so many nonprofits out there. When you're looking at funding, mm -hmm. are you um, so on the not on the profit side? Like, mm -hmm. there's always the thought of like not getting, not having too much of your income coming from one 
ways. Do you try to, not, maybe not like one individual or one organization, but are you trying to spread that funding out between the grants, the individuals, the court? Like, is that a piece of it or is it kind of just like wherever we can get money, we can get money? I mean, I'll take money wherever I can get it, but I love to be able to, if I could fund most of the organization off of foundations, individuals, and corporate sponsors, then the grants become either gap funding or project funding. Okay. So that I can, everyday operations are managed by this side over here, but then the grants allow me to to build our new museum. Yeah. You know, or to um, to restore the Lemoyne House windows. Like right now, we, I mean, we have over a million dollars in projects going on with our new building and with the Lemoyne House restoration and with our new Underground Railroad exhibit that's going to be opening up. And that's primarily through grant funding okay. you know, that that we were able to go through. Um, or you can apply, like we're applying for a foundation because we have this gap in there where we know we're going to start seeing income coming from the new building, the new research and education center when it's done, but it's not done yet. So there's this gap in there that we need to fill till, till we can see the profits start coming yeah. in from the new building. Um, and so a foundation, we're looking at a foundation where that's what they like to fund. So you know, there's, yeah. you are juggling all kind of different sources in a nonprofit. Like instead of just having a product you're selling and you know your income is coming from selling something, you're juggling it. Like, okay, I'm going to get this funding over here and I'm going to go over yeah. here and then I'm going to have this. And a funding tree for a nonprofit is ridiculous to look at sometimes. And sometimes I need to get this grant over here. I need to match it with $10,000. So I've got to get $10,000 from this foundation so that I can go get this grant over here uh, and be able to double that money. And then I could take that money and I can say, well, I've got $20,000 going to this project. And I go to an individual and I say, listen, I've already got $20,000. What would you think about putting another 15 to that? And that'll get me to where I need to be to finish the project. So now I've got that coming in. And that's just for one project. So I've got to map everything for that one project. But then there's general operating, mm-hmm. there's salaries and all that that you got to map too. So it's it's confusing and it's it's hard sometimes to envision where it's all coming from. Do you have a okay? So I have a couple things here. <laughs> Do you have a system or a tool that you use to keep track of those things? Like how I have Kathy. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so no, we do track it. We have, uh, there's, there's software out there for like, um, that we can use, like for our accounting, we use QuickBooks. Uh, but there's also a program called Fundly. Uh, Fundly is wonderful. They've got a lot of, uh, resources for CRMs, you know, and for, for management of your, your mm. donors and your database. Uh, but also that you can, like when you go in and you can say, you know, Brad donated this and I can tag what it was for. Okay. So now if I need to go in and say, where did the funding for this come from? I can hit that tag, yeah. Underground Railroad, and now it lists all of it. So okay. there's software out there that can help you keep track of it. And then a lot of it, it is it is juggling and you're like, okay, so I pulled this money from here so I could get this. Why did I do that? And that's where I, so remember I told you I screwed up the grant. Mm -hmm. That's what happened is I forgot where money was going and coming from in it. And because of that, I risk losing that money. And so Mm. you have to be very careful to make sure that you know what's happening. When you're asking, when you're getting funding, is it generally for specific, like, do you need to know where it's going? 
Um, Roughly. I mean, I'm sure there's maybe differences. Like, individuals might be different than a grant. Mm. Yeah, like an individual, they may donate. Like, we have donors that have donated money for our new um, abolitionist and underground railroad exhibit, the Arcs of Freedom exhibit. And they have donated, and they know their money is going to that Mm -hmm. exhibit. But then we have, um, you know, donors that will just donate $1,000 or whatever, and and it goes into the general fund. So they help pay for the electric Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. And that's the hardest funding to get. General operating support is the hardest thing to get because it's not sexy. Mm-hmm. Like, so if I go to you and you have you you have fifty thousand dollars you want to donate, and I'm like, so just so you know, you're going to cover the sewage, uh, yeah. the electric, <laughs> and our internet. Um, and you're going, oh great, that's what my money's going uh-huh. to. Like, okay, I, I'll put your name plaque on the toilet, right? Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, nobody wants that, but. <laughs> If I tell you you're going to fund our new Arcs of Freedom, our Underground Road exhibit that is a best of its kind in the region, and your name is going to be right there on it, you want to give money for that, right? Yeah. You want some. You want your money to go to something awesome and something like you know, a former uh, historical society board president Ben Costello. He said you want sexy projects. Yeah. General operating is not sexy. But it is so necessary because if we don't if we don't fund yeah, that, none of the rest of it. I can't do anything else. Yeah. And so that's where like foundations that support general operating, they are my favorite foundations because it's so hard to get that funding. Yeah. Or individuals that donate during the annual appeal know that that's going towards our general operating. And that's that's the best funding. <laughs> so when you're coming up with pro- like it, it seems like they're are an infinite number of projects that you can come up with. Like, so do you have to be like, okay, so you're looking for funding for all mm-hmm. of these things though. Is there a like teasing out period where you're kind of just introducing, it's like, oh, maybe we have like 17 ideas that we're currently throwing around, but you might be able to get a little bit of funding for this one, but you can get a lot for this one. How do you just with your time in this industry and with this organization, are you able to kind of look at things and just kind of have a sense for what's going to go or um, or is it kind of just like, let me start talking to people and figure out what the interest is and then I can start asking for money for things? Sometimes I'll have an idea that it's a good, like I'll, I'll come up with something I'm like, that's a good idea and we need to run with it. There are sometimes I come up with an idea and I think it's a cool idea and it's fun, but it's not going to go anywhere. Like yeah. No one's going to want to do it. Um. Like laid back history was just a, I was bored and I thought I'd do it and it's taken off and it's become a revenue stream for us because people donate to keep it going and to help, you know, keep that, 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 that product, you know, um, running of the wolves was one of those ones where it seemed like a cool idea and a fun idea. I had no idea, no thought at all that it would take off as big as it has. Um, you know, and that's where, you know, when we came up with that idea, it was to be fun and educational because yeah. we want everything to be educational, but we want it to be fun at the same time. And so I had no idea it was going to take off and it did. I'm as, I'm as stunned as anyone else that it has. And it was partly my idea. You know, Sarah Collier and I came up with the idea for it. And Shana has, Shana Brown, uh, the, the current, mm-hmm. uh, BDA director has run with it. Um, I didn't have a clue it was going to be like that. A lot of times, um, it is conversations. So, uh, I, I there was one foundation in particular that we 
made a basically set up a meeting to introduce ourselves to them. Here's who we are. Um, and then met with them, told them who we are, what we're doing, and then said, you know, do you think you'd want to fund us? And and they came back and said, yes, we think, you know, what we like is this. And that's what they ended up funding. So a lot of times it is just talking and, and running ideas past people and mm-hmm. seeing what they think. Um, I think that's our coffee group that we meet Friday mornings. Yeah. I think we do that a lot with one another, not... Sometimes not intentionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just throwing things out, but your reaction to something sometimes I'll go, "Wow, Brad, like that. I wonder if I should do something with yeah. that." Or you know, or a conversational start, and then you start running with it from there. So the community input, I do that with our laid back history a lot. Hey, we're thinking about doing something like this. In the comments, let me know what you yeah. think. Now, I want to. I want that for two reasons. One, I want the comments. Yeah. But two, I want to know what people think. Yeah. And that we build off of that, then go towards ideas. Because for every twenty ideas, one of them may may be good and profitable. Yeah. The other ones are just kind of like, oh, okay, why are you doing that? Yeah. <laughs> so well, yeah, and and with it, like, because you have to, you can't just. It's not a product in a lot of cases. Yeah. Like, so you can't just offer this thing and if it doesn't sell then you move on to the next it's right. i mean it's similar but like if you're trying to get funding for let's say a project is going to take it's going to take fifty thousand dollars to do this one and mm-hmm. 75 for this one and 100 for this one it's like well if i only get 10 for this and 20 for this and 15 for this it's like i have nothing now right so and and you've wasted time getting all those things so mm-hmm. being kind of deliberate but also just soaking in all the conversations and teasing some things and mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of what it is. It is, it, you know, it's kind of like, um, <laughs> I don't know what that show is on TV where they have the the people that the inventors will come in with a product and they uh, try to Shark sell. Tank. Shark Tank. I, I feel like that's a lot of what it is sometimes when you're going to foundations or individuals where you're kind of, you're, you're like, I've got my product, I've uh-huh. got history, I've got the organization, and you're trying to sell it to them. And they're like, oh, well, I want 50% of that uh-huh. for $500,000. And that's a lot of what it is. You huh. know, that that is the same thing that I'm doing. I am they're selling a, a product where I, I'm selling history yeah. and, and development. Cause the the that's a big thing that I don't think I realized early on. I had no idea that I was going to be so focused on community development as the director of the historical society. But as I went on, I started to realize that the better this community is, and and that's not just Washington, it's Mm -hmm. the entire county in southwestern Pennsylvania, the better off I am. And so um, creating a better environment is beneficial to us. Mm -hmm. And so I got very much into that, and I I started working with – Sarah is the one that really opened my eyes to that a lot – and so I started working with her and now with, with Shana. And I still work with Sarah because she's the director of the, the National Road Heritage Corridor. So we work with them, uh, partner with a lot of things. And I start seeing, you know, as as the community starts to grow and you see better businesses in downtown Washington or, or wherever it is, yeah. it helps us. And so like running of the wolves, a big part of that is promoting downtown, and but also the agriculture of southwestern Pennsylvania because – there's, you know, and it's, you know, you have to tie all this together because there's agritourism that's starting to be a big thing. Well, the more people that come in for that, they might come to my museum. Yeah. And so if I have an event that helps build that 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 side of things, it's going to benefit me. And so I'm selling history, but I'm also selling a better 
community environment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's well that um that's say that came up with Shayna and with Mark recently. Mm-hmm. Um which is that like the idea that a better everything is better for everybody. Yep. Like you can focus on just making your thing better. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. Like you can do well that way. Right. But if you can do that and be focusing on this community development, which is mm-hmm. exactly what Shana and I were talking about. Like, okay, now more people are going to be coming here and you need funding. Yeah. She needs, fu- like all of these things need funding. All of these businesses need sales. Like mm-hmm. it's good for everybody. The more yeah. people you're bringing in for an event, the better it is for everybody. Right. Look at the the brewery, uh, the Washington Brewery, right across the road from the, from the Lemoyne house. Mm-hmm. I... I don't know how many people I've sent to them and how many people they've sent to us. Cause you know, you go in there and, the, and they might ask, ask, ask the waitress, what else can we do? Yeah. You know, Oh, the Lemoyne house is right across the road. Why don't you go there? Or people come to my museum and they're like, where can we go eat? Well, we've got the brewery right here. We've uh-huh. got the union grill, you know? And, and so the more businesses and the better the community is, the more foot traffic I'm going to have coming through my organization. And so it benefits me. It benefits the the museum it benefits the historical society to make the community better and so what i found is not only so i kind of got into it because i wanted to benefit the historical society and then i found no i i there's another part of that is i just care about the community yeah and i want to help with that and 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 by having more of a passion for that has also made me see how much more beneficial it can be for the historical society. So yeah. it's kind of, it just keeps, it's a give yeah. and take all the time. Yeah. And it builds. It's kind of, Earlier on, I said that our history builds on itself. Yeah. Well, we're building on it now. You know, our history has continued to build. And someday, somebody is going to be looking back. There's going to be a historian 40 years from now looking back and seeing that, you know, oh, the the agriculture and the sheep business in the 1870s led up to the agriculture in the 1940s, which led eventually to running of the wolves, <laughs> which became you know a, a, a staple of downtown Washington, and it, it built up the community and you know interest in the community, and somehow it's going to keep stacking on itself, and we may not see it right now exactly how it's going to happen, yeah. but it is. So the more we do, the more it stacks, the better the community gets. Hmm. Yeah, that's. That's kind of cool. Um, okay. Okay. Let me see if I – we've covered the, the nonprofit questions I had. The events um, – okay, so you've mentioned that those are not a – if that's your only way to make money, probably not the best way, but they are necessary. Right. Um, when you're creating events, is there a – like, how are you thinking about, though, do you focus, is, is your main focus on community events mm-hmm. or is it on, like, people that could be potential donors or are they both or are there separate events for each of those things? Or, yeah, how are you, how do you think about events? So I look at I look at them a couple of different ways. Um, let's start with... Uh, Let's start with something like uh, the the ghastly tales, the ghost tours that the Historical Society does mm-hmm. down, downtown Washington. Uh, we started those uh, a long time ago. Um, and so here's why I started those ghost tours. Because I had history that I wanted to get to people. 
And as we talked, a lot of people don't like history. It's boring, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, if I do this ghosts, these ghost stories, that some of the ghost stories are tied to these true historical events. So I can tell the history and lead through the history to get to the ghost story. Now you come to hear the ghost story, but you're getting history lesson to be like at the beginning yeah. of it, and you don't even realize it. All I'm doing is telling a story that's building up to a ghost, um, <laughs> and you don't even realize you're getting the history lesson at the beginning. So, I started that event to tell more history. It was to reach individuals that maybe didn't have a love for history, but everybody loves Halloween. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't? Yeah. So I could draw in those people and suddenly start telling history of Washington and gain more interest in what we're doing. So that event was started for that sole purpose. Uh-huh. I wasn't worried about making money off of it. I mean, I wanted to, yeah. but I wasn't worried about it. I wanted to reach more people with history. So that event was for that. Now, um, uh, Spirits in the Garden. Okay, Spirits in the Garden, another event the Historical Society has uh, where we have historical figures, the spirits of historical figures come back and tell you know their yeah. stories, their ties to Washington, whatever it may be. That event was not was to carry on another event that we used to have called Art in the Garden. Art in the Garden was solely a fundraising event. Um, we sold, we had a big art show, and that was a big fundraising event for the Historical Society. But as people stopped buying art, what it became was a wonderful garden party that we built relationships through. And so to carry that on without having to have the art show, we started Spirits in the Garden. So we have this awesome garden mm-hmm. party. We still tell history. But we build wonderful friendships. If you buy a ticket to to Spirits in the Garden, you get a one-year membership to the Historical Society as part of it. And so now we we build our membership. We build our relationships. We get people. So um, Washington County Tourism Promotion Agency, uh, they sponsor the event. Okay. We give them, I think they get 15, 20 tickets for Uh the event. Well, now Jeff Catula, who's the head of of the tourism, will invite you know, maybe his board of directors, but other people that, you know, that he wants to, so he wants to build relationships with them. Mm-hmm. Why don't you come to the Historical Society event with me? And so they come, and now I get to meet them. Yep. And I get to build that relationship. So that was for that that purpose. But then there's another, you know, so eventually those people are maybe going to lead towards sponsorships or towards funding. But then there's another event. Uh, another thing that we do, the Washington County um, Hall of Fame Awards Banquet, where we honor people that have made a difference either in the past or are currently making a difference in different fields. It's mm-hmm. not just history. It can yeah. be anything. That was a couple things. One, we wanted the event that we felt that we could make some money off of. You know, didn't have to fund the organization, but we wanted to make a profit off of it. Um, and we wanted a way of fulfilling our mission. Our mission is to preserve the history and tell the history of Washington County. Well, this this event did a lot of that by promoting these historic figures, but also those that are current. Uh-huh. Um, we were able to fulfill a huge part of the educational side of our mission. And so it was it it was a, a twofold thing where we fulfilled our mission. And so when I go to a grant for a grant or to a foundation mm-hmm. and they ask, what's your mission and are you fulfilling it? Here you go. Yeah. You know, I am. Here's one of the ways I'm doing it. Um, but it also built up friendships and relationships, you know, because if I honor you, you invite your whole family yeah. or, you know, to come with you because we give you a couple tickets. Yeah. They all come around and maybe they see what they like and they become members or whatever and they stick around. So there's different aspects like 
ghost tours just wanted to tell yeah. history. Hall of or Spirits in the Garden wanted to build relationships and have a wonderful garden party to promote the historical society and eventually build some fun, you know, funding from yeah. it. The uh, Hall of Fame fulfill our mission so that we can use that to go after money at different foundations and grants. At the same time, if we make some money, great. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then there are events. Uh, we don't have, excuse me, we don't have one right now, but there are events out there that are primarily fundraising events. Mm-hmm. When I was working at the uh, Bradford House and the the um, uh, Whiskey Rebellion dinner was started, it began as a, just to make money. That was the thing. We needed money, and that event started just to make money. Now, his built into, um, you know, a, a building relationships and things like yeah. that, but it began to make money. Um, so, and there's other organizations that do the same thing, and there's nothing wrong with, like, like I said, there's yeah. nothing wrong with that, but you can't have eight events a year. And yeah. think you're going to fund your organization off of it. Yeah, but unless so, they're epic events. Yeah, unless you have eight <laughs> amazing events, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, and events have life cycles, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like Art in the Garden, it went on for 25 years. It probably went on for five years too long. We should, probably should have cut it off at 20. Um, but it has life cycles, you know, where it, it builds up. Uh-huh. It becomes an amazing event. And then it starts, you know, people are like, oh, I've been there before. I've yeah. done it. You know, yeah. you've got to keep it fresh. Uh, you know, every event has that life cycle. Uh, that's why the Hall of Fame, I love it. It's such a great event because every year you're bringing new people into uh-huh. it. And so it has a little bit of a longer life cycle because you're always bringing a new audience in. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it's, it's... That's cool. Yeah, it was a wonderful event. I take no credit for it. That was Bracken Burns, one of our board members, former commissioner. That was his idea. He came up with the event. And it's, you know, it, it'll live on uh-huh. past him probably. Um but yeah, the the idea is is that you have to look at events and see what are you getting from them and what's the purpose of them. And so I kind of have those three things that I look at. That's what we have with our events. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. And then um, also publicity. If you have yeah. the Hall of Fame, there's publicity from it. You have the Spirits in the Garden, there's publicity from it, and it draws draws in more people. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, is there? Is there anything nonprofit related that you think is important to cover that we haven't covered? We've kind of skimmed the surface on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything that's super important that you think we should talk about uh, before we? I mean, we've t- the thing the the most important thing to me with nonprofits, and we've gone into it multiple different times in different ways. Is there benefit to the community? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the biggest thing that nonprofits a lot of times are the backbones of communities because they serve, uh, they, they, they look at underserved groups and, or, and, 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 um, communities and they help them, mm-hmm. you know, like with the literacy council, you know, those that are, you know, that it serves a certain group. And without that, you know, without the literacy council, that group gets ignored. Yeah. Um, and so I think nonprofits are, are like CASA is another one. I mean, look, they're serving, you know, children that are they're having issue. They're advocates in the courtroom for, for kids. Uh, you know, they serve this this community that really needs help. And I think nonprofits are so important to that. I, I think they become the backbone of communities in a lot of ways. But 
I think so many times they also get pushed to the background because we forget about you know, yeah. what they are. Like, okay, so we know that these kids are being served, but we don't know how they are. Yeah. Um, and that's why I've made such an effort with the historical society to get it out there. Like, you don't want to know why, like, the history is built and why things are happening. It We're out here doing it, and I want you to see that. Yeah. And it's, it's a weird... It's a weird thing where I'm not great at self-promotion, but I have to be self-promoting yeah. to make sure people know, you know, what we're doing. But I think I think that's the big thing, and we've touched on it. Building communities, you need nonprofits to do that. Yeah. And, and I think you know, they're a huge, huge part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's all. Well, and, and you can be self-promoting. Like, the way that you have done that mm-hmm. is by doing things that are – you're not like constantly like, hey, here we are. Give us money. Right. It's like, you know, like laid back history. It's like, oh no, I'm just telling you cool things. Right. Which is what we do. Like the the act of you providing the information is you mm-hmm. self promoting. Yeah, and and it's created amazing. Uh, laid back history was one of the best things I ever did. Um, <laughs> it has been fun to do it, and I have gained friends that I've never met in mm-hmm. person. Uh, there are people that are, you know, Washington County transplants living in California that came across it and watch it every week now. And I've talked to them like we message like they didn't watch for two or three weeks. Uh-huh. And I messaged like, hey, everything OK? Oh, yeah, we're just on vacation. Like, OK, I just want to make sure you're good. Um, and, and it's been so awesome to see, like to build that community back up. And so this online community that can't come to Washington for yeah. events they can still kind of join in. Yeah. And they have, they've become donors. You know, they've, they've, That's they've cool. given to at the day of giving or the annual appeal, they've donated to us because of those relationships that we were able to build. And that's just been fun. Yeah. Like that's the kind of thing that's just, just great to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, okay. Where can everybody find you and the Washington Historical Society? I'm normally running around town somewhere. <laughs> um, so the Washington County Historical Society, right now we're located in the LeMoyne House uh, for a few more months. Uh, so 49 East Main Street in Washington uh, is the LeMoyne House. That's the Underground Railroad Museum. Uh, but we are currently building, uh, it should be done in a couple weeks, actually, oh. uh, the new Research and Education Center, which will be our new headquarters. Uh, that is directly across the road at 48 East Maiden Street. For um, maybe, I don't want to say our older population, but those that are like 50 and above, uh, you'll remember uh, Palmer's Beer Distributor. That's where we're located. Uh, I've had so many people that have come to me and be like, that's where I bought my first beer. <laughs> um, Mickey, Mickey didn't care if you were underage. Um, so, so, yeah, Nikki Palmer is just like, oh, you could go up and be like, oh, I'm buying it for my dad. Okay, that's fine. And he lets you take it back. Um, but, uh, but, no, so, you know, that was, is we've kind of rehabbed the, which was another LeMoyne house, but where the Palmers lived, we've rehabbed that, have that house and built on the back of it. So that's where we're going to be located. But you can find us at on our Facebook page. If you just go to Facebook and look up the LeMoyne house, you'll find us on there. And that's where we post our laid back histories, our promotion for a lot of our stuff. We have a YouTube page. Just look up Washington County Historical Society. Uh, and then, um, yeah. And then okay. around town at pretty much any event, you'll see us around. Yes. We're, we're tied into a lot of it. So, and running of the wolves, that's a big thing. That's our next big thing that we're, that we're so excited about. That's May 6th. Uh, so you'll see me wrangling sheep uh, around town and you know, yeah. running them down the street. Um, okay. So I will have all of those links will be, um, those will all be down below. Um, thank you for coming on. This was fun. I had a good time. Um, 
If you have any suggestions for any other guests or any topics you would like to see covered, um, shoot, uh, shoot me an email down below and share this, like it, comment, do all the things that are super helpful. Um, thank you for watching. Have a marvelous week. Thanks for coming on. See you next time.